I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles today to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And today, believe it or not, we conclude the study of the epistle of James. We began this study back on January 8th. And if perchance you have been taking notes, if perhaps the study of James has been something that has blessed your heart like it has blessed my heart, I'll tell you what, the greatest blessing of all of this is the preparation for me, period. To dive into the Word of God is the best. I said to Barbara after Tuesday night's Bible study, I said these words to Barbara. I said, I love the Word of God. It was like a spontaneous reaction that burst out of me. As soon as we hung up, I said, I love the Word of God. I love studying it. I love teaching it. I love preaching it. And I said, what would be my life if I couldn't do this? And I pray that you have an appetite for the Word of God. I think about the words of Jesus when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, as we go through this, and as we're about to conclude the epistle of James, I want to open up with a quote from one of my favorite men, a contemporary man from today, a man I had the pleasure to meet and, and kind of fellowship briefly with, and that's Paul Washer. And I want you to listen to this quote that Paul Washer says. Through the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God has made for himself a new people. He has reconciled them and transformed them into a collective group of individuals who both know him and desire to know him more. This real, personal knowledge of God and his will is a distinctive mark of the true church and will be, go- and will be an ongoing reality in the life of every believer. And I could not agree more with Paul Washer's words. I could not agree more with Paul Washer's words. That those who God saved know Him and desire to know Him more. Before we even take a step further, that's the challenge today. That's the challenge to you, and that's the challenge to me. What is the distinctive mark of your conversion? The distinctive mark of your conversion is that you indeed know God and that you indeed desire to know Him more. How do I know God? I know God by coming in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, to the confession and the repentance of my sin, crying out to Christ for mercy, asking God to come in and save me by the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes to reside in me and live me and feed me on the words of life. That's how I get to know God. There is no other way. It is not your ethics. It is not your morals. It's not your best intentions. 
It is, do you have a hunger and a thirst for God? Do you indeed know? And I'll say something and I'll take it even further. If you know God, you're going to be compelled by the book, by the Holy Bible. You're going to be compelled into it. You're going to be diving into it. The Spirit of God is going to be drawing you deeper and deeper and deeper into the Word of God. And the Word of God becomes so satisfying to you that there's nothing, absolutely nothing else that could sustain you or feed you or that you will find your pleasure in. And I say this with absolute confidence, not in me. I say this in confidence of the Word of God. If you've been in the Word of God, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, if you studied the lives of the great men and women in the book of the Bible, if you listen to the teaching of Jesus Christ, one thing comes resoundingly clear. And what comes screaming through is that God has created for himself a new people. A people whose hearts of stone have been shattered and he's given them a heart of flesh. A people who have now embraced this new covenant found in the blood of Jesus Christ. That God became a man, that he dwelt among them, that he sacrificed, that he bled and died, that he was buried in the tomb, that he was raised on the third day, that he walked among men for 40 days. Over 500 people saw him and then he went to his disciples and he ascended in the heaven in such a manner that the angels stopped and said why are you looking up in the sky for this same Jesus who ascended into heaven is going to come likewise in the same manner and I'll tell you what that's not far away that's not far away the absence of a hunger the absence of a thirst more than likely is indicative of unbelief because the unbelievers don't desire the things of God. Unbelievers go out by proving their ethic, by proving their moral, by proving by work. Oh my goodness, if I had to be saved by works, there is not enough time in millennia to be able to do it. There is not enough good works that I could possibly do. So we say praise God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the unmerited favor of Christ. Praise God that God put upon Him my sin and your sin if you are in Christ. And that by coming to a new birth indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit, one of the three, one of the triune God, who indeed the Holy Spirit craves fellowship with who? With the Father and the Son. And compels us to Christ. That's why Paul said, He who began a good work in you will continue to do so. It's a done deal. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the one who started the work is going to be the one who finishes the work. Amen. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what the Word of God tells us. But now we come to the end of this epistle of James. And it's James's whole epistle is effectively what we opened up with. That God has created a new people. And that that new people go through a series of tests. There's the test of suffering. 
The test of temptation. The test of endurance. The test of patience. The test of faith. All believers are tested in that manner. And James said it is the one who endures. The one who perseveres. The one who obeys. The one who walks in obedience. The one who doesn't say, I have faith, but their life is devoid of works. He says, no man, you're like the devil. The devil, the, the, the demons, they, they say they believe, but they fear and tremble. He said, no, the believer produces works. And he has exposed those who said they have faith, but they don't. He has exposed those that have put their faith and confidence in riches and materialism and possession. He said, you're exposed. If that's where your hope is, if that's where your trust is, man, you're exposed. And your faith is not proven to be genuine. He has exposed those that, whose faith only exists in a verbal faith. Oh, I believe. I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe in this. If James were present today, and he were here in America to see the landscape of the American church, he would surely rebuke us. And he would cry against the current church as he did in James 2.19. He says, you believe you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. As my mentor Frank Milano always told me, he goes, Mark, the difference between the demons and people and Christians today is the demons fear and tremble. Most people don't fear and tremble at the name of God. Today we finish this glorious epistle. Glorious epistle. And we're going to read James' final two verses, verses 19 and 20. And these final two verses are a very fitting ending to this epistle. Because for the last time, James is going to confront those in the church with a dead faith. And his heart is to call them to repentance so that they would awake from their comfort and find salvation in Christ. And we see in these final two verses, the last call, the last call from James to profess believers. And the call is to declare the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to turn those who have gone astray, to turn them back to Christ. And he does this knowing that in doing so, in doing so, he doesn't gain more people for the church. He doesn't gain points with the Lord. He knows that in doing this, in a proper declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if it falls on the right heart upon hearing this, he will turn their souls from an eternal death to eternal life in Jesus Christ. By the way, it's the only motivation for declaring the gospel. That's it. We want to turn men and women's hearts away from error and turn them to truth. So let's take a look at this final call of James, and we're going to begin with verse 19. Verse 19 reads, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, verse 20, and let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of 
sins. James begins summating this epistle by calling false believers, false believers, turn to Christ, turn to Christ. And who is he addressing? He's addressing the brethren. This isn't just anybody who's in the church. He is referring to those who are saved in the church. They are the brethren. So he turns to the brethren and he tells them this. Hey, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns you back, well then, you did something right. That person did something right because you save a soul from death. In addition to that, he sends a call to those who profess Christ and are not truly saved. His heart is for a pure church. A pure, spotless, undefiled church. My heart is for a pure church. A spotless and undefiled church. Your heart, if you're a believer, should be for the same. That the church of Jesus Christ would be that spotless bride of Christ. And that's who Christ is returning for. You know that, right? He is returning for a spotless bride, an undefiled, not a defective bride, not a weak bride, not a beaten up bride, not a culturally relevant bride, not a social bride. Christ is returning for a spotless and pure bride. That spotless and pure resides in those who love the Lord God with all of their heart and all of their mind and all of their soul and, as Jesus said, all of their strength. And so consequently, he calls them unto repentance. I I did a a devotion once on sermon audio called Evangelize the Church. That's where evangelism begins. Everybody says you got to get out there. No, you got to get in here. And you got to begin the evangelism in here. And you got to declare a true gospel. And you never make assumptions on, oh, that one's saved, that one's saved. I hear people all the time saying, I don't think that guy's saved. I don't think that guy's saved. Well, how do you know? Is there criteria? I'll tell you what, the Bible gives you criteria you can know. For the most part. For the most part. Ultimately, God knows the heart. We don't play Holy Spirit. I don't walk around going, that one's in, that one's out, that one's in, that one's out. But it is clear that the Scripture gives identifying marks or characteristics of what people who have God's righteousness look like. And by the way, if you want to learn more about that, I strongly encourage you, come out on Tuesday night as we're studying the kingdom life. And we're we're examining exactly the, the Lord's Sermon on the Mount and what kingdom righteousness looks like. Here James has in mind those who profess the name of Christ but have never repented. James probably, and he already has described them earlier, as those that are hearers of the Word of God, but they're not doers of the Word of God. And there in chapter 2, the hearers don't have a good ending. Right? They're lost. They're deceived. This was true of Israel. You know this was true of Israel in the Old Testament, right? In Isaiah 29, 13, listen to the words of the prophet. Then the Lord said, because these people draw near to me with their words 
and honor me with lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. How many times we talk against tradition, we talk against rote, we, we talk against formalism, doing something without your heart behind it. Here, the prophet rebukes Israel. Hey, all your worship, you, you say the right things. But your heart's nowhere near me. What a horrible... You ever stop and think about that? What a horrible thing that is. That the Lord would say to anyone, Yep, you said all the right words. But they're not the words of your heart. If they were, you would obey me. You would follow me. James has taught that true saving faith is evidenced by its proper response to trials and to temptations and to the Word of God. And I really believe that they are those who Paul Washer said who both know Him and desire to know Him. The point that James is making here at the end of his epistle is for believers in the church to evangelize the lost and the lost that may be sitting right among us. Now, that doesn't mean you get up and go to a person next to you and pull out a track and you say, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? But as we see people that are coming and going, as we see people that may be wandering, it behooves us, those that are spiritual, those that are healthy, to reach out to those. and Maybe they share with us some of their plight. And we can encourage them constantly with the Word of God. Let me tell you something. I, I'm not patting ourselves on the back. I'm not patting me on the back. But if there's one thing we do in this church, man, is we give the Word of God. It starts Sunday at 9.15 with Sunday school. We teach the Word of God. It goes on Sunday at 10.30 when we preach the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We read the Word of God. It goes to Tuesday night as we teach the Word of God. It goes to Wednesday night as we devote our time to the Word of God and then devote our time to prayer. And if you've just about seen anything, you'll always know if you've ever been counseled by me, if you ever, you know, I don't do anything without taking taking out the Bible and saying, here's what the Word of God says. Yes, you don't need my dumb opinions. You don't need anything from me. You need the Word of God. I need the Word of God. Amen. It's the only thing that soothes the bomb inside the heart. Yes, and so constantly we must go with the Word of God. And James has done a great job of this. He calls on the brethren, you who are believers, you're concerned for others in the congregation. He says there, if any, any, of, any among you strays from the truth. That word stray means to cause to wander. They're drifting, they're moving aside, they're wandering, right? Especially they're wandering, the word gives definition, especially they're wandering through ignorance. Now, it doesn't mean ignorance in a common educational sense. It means ignorance with regard to spiritual truth. 
they begin to wander from spiritual truth and they begin to adapt false teachings. Spraying, uh, straying speaks of those who constantly wander. They're set apart by the wind and the waves. They're drawn, as the writer of Hebrews says, to every wind of doctrine. And we see a lot of this today. Man, we get a lot of people who focus in on their pet peeves of their doctrinal pet peeves. And if you don't meet their pet peeve, they dismiss you, they throw you out. And many times, without love. Without love. Paul expressed a similar sentiment to the church at Galatia. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And by the way, when the Bible talks about truth, what is it talking about? It's talking about divine truth. It's talking about the very word of God. As Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So how are we to live our lives? That's the issue. If we're believers in the body of Christ, if we are born-again believers, if we are Holy Spirit-filled believers, we're to have a love for one another. We are not individuals. i got to emphasize this. We are not individual. There's no such thing as individualistic Christianity, which says, I'll just sit here, leave me alone, I'll do my own thing, and I'll come back next week if you don't bug me. But if we are in the body of Christ, we have a love for one another, do we not? And do we not want to encourage one another in the faith? And when we see a brother or sister who's weak, when we see a brother or sister who's struggling, do we not want to desire to come alongside them and see, can I do anything? Listen, there's a lot of times you come alongside somebody and somebody may say, amen, back off, and you back off. But you continue to pray. You can text message a scripture verse and say, I want to encourage you with this. You don't have to be all up in their face, but you can love them. That's what the believer does. And we do that for a reason. Why? Because some of the people that we may stumble upon, some of the people that are sitting, some of the people that are thinking, you know, that may be in our midst, but are individualistic, may be hurting and may really be well, they may not be believers at all. And we want our light to shine in the world, as Lord Jesus said on the Sermon of Mount, so that it's visible, so that everyone sees our light, that they know that we're Christians. We know, they would know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, we live our life in obedience to the Lord and to his commandments. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3.24. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us, but the spirit who has given us. Now I want to share something with you. This is very important. You may not hear this in a lot of churches. Did you hear John's word? The one who knows him is the one who keeps his commandments. The one who keeps his commandments abides in Christ. Now I want to I share something here. 
You cannot be disobedient to the commandments of God, but yet abide in Christ. Now what we're talking about is a whole life. We're not talking about a single instance. If your life is oriented to disobedience, it is perpetual. It is ongoing. There is no regard for the commandment of the Lord. There is no regard for the Word of God. There is no regard for being obedient to Christ. If when you sin, there is no conviction of sin, that's a very dangerous place to be. And it does not matter. It does not matter how many times you may have prayed a prayer. It does not matter how many times you walked an aisle. It does not matter if you were baptized. It does not matter if you signed a church membership card. It does not matter. None of that matters. If your life remains in perpetual disobedience to God and you have no regard for that, that's a dangerous place to be. How dangerous? You're in danger of losing your eternal soul. That's how dangerous it is. That's what James is going to say at the end of this epistle. As he writes in verse 20, he'll save his soul from death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. To save the soul from death. Oh, Mark, are you preaching fire and brimstone? Well, I haven't gotten to the fire yet. I haven't gotten to the brimstone. So what does James say? Hey, you see somebody like that and you go to him, turn him back. Turn him back to Christ. I've had multiple instances in the years in ministry to sit down and talk with people who have walked away from the faith. And by the way, they've walked away from the faith believing that they're still justified in Christ. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know. Blah, blah. And they walk away in the faith. What do I do? I tell them, you're a bad boy. You're a bad girl. Don't do this. Don't do that. I don't do that. I beg. And I plead with them. Don't do this. Repent. Go back to Christ. Go back. If you repent now, he'll be ready to forgive you. But should you die in this estate? Yes, sir. And sometimes they'll say, well, once saved, always saved. Isn't that true? And I go, amen. It's true for the believer in Jesus Christ. The one who keeps his commandment. And he abides in him and Christ in him. But you can't play Jeopardy with God. I have cried with people, begging them to repent. Begging them to repent. Listen, this is very personal for me because I think of the many people I've baptized in this church who no longer walk with God. I can think of several people who I laid hands on and I baptized, one that left and is living in sin, outright sin, others that have left that have denounced the name of Jesus Christ, and the worst one, the ones that have left that think they're good. 
and they didn't leave the church. If they left the church and they went to another gospel preaching church, praise God, hallelujah, they weren't meant for here. But to leave and to turn their back on Christ. No. And to live that life, not convicted under the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means they're dead to the Spirit. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. James speaks of the one that turns or points him back in the right direction. What direction? What direction is he referring to? Back to Christ. Go back to Christ. Even if they weren't saved, they sat among the believers. They heard the gospel. You point them back to Christ. Come back to Christ. Repent. Repent. Listen, don't let pride get in the way. Don't say, well, I did that once. I don't have to do it again. Don't let pride get in the way. Give your heart wholly and completely to Jesus Christ until you are filled with Christ, until you are filled with His Spirit, until you are walking in righteousness, until the Lord God Almighty sustains you and establishes you in His Word. That's the amazing thing. That's why salvation isn't of human logic. You know my famous saying? Famous. <laughs> we know it. You know my famous saying? I can't get past grace. You know what preceded that thought in me? This is what preceded it. I was contemplating how could God save me. That's what I was contemplating. As I recalled the sins of my youth, and I thought about all the contemptible and nasty things that I did before I was saved. And how I thought I used the name of the Lord and how I served supposedly in the name of the Lord. And how God must have been disgusted at that. And I started thinking about that. I say, how could, how could I be saved? Lord, show me the logic that's behind this. And you know what the truth is? The truth is there is no logic. The truth is, is that divine salvation does not make human sense. Wait a second. The innocent pays for the crimes of the guilty? The guilty go free and the innocent gets punished? How does that make any sense? That does not make sense. We don't even have a legal system that says, okay, you're convicted of robbery. Let us let you, the robber, go free and we're going to throw the cop in prison. Although, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened in this. Season. But I contemplated that, and I looked at it from every kind of rational means, and I came to the conclusion, it's not humanly logical. And then a thought came over me. And I said, praise God, it's not logical. Because if it were logical, if it were practical, if it were pragmatic then it would be nothing more than the logic of another human being. Something that could be calculated, something that could be figured out, and something that could be manipulated. And I said, Lord, 
Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Lord, I don't have to understand why this has happened or how it has happened. I just praise you that it is indeed true. And that's how I got to the place where I said I can't get past grace. And I still can't. Oh, I could define theologically what it takes for a man or woman to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Being able to articulate that doesn't mean that I could comprehend it in its fullest sense. I can't. As a matter of fact, I truly believe that the one that is saved, I'm not dogmatic about this, but I truly believe that when a person gets saved, there's an awe and there's a wonder that every time you seriously contemplate your salvation, you go, I'm not worthy, God. Why in the world would you save me? And you're met nothing with the, but the love of God that is poured out upon you. And the Lord God says, that's exactly what I want you to know. You're not worthy. It is unmerited favor. It is unconditional love. And hey, guess what? I've taken your sin, as the prophet Micah says, and I cast it in the depths of the sea. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as I remove your transgression. As the apostle Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Listen to the apostle Paul. He's a new creation. He's not a reformed creation. He's a new creation. All the old things, all the old thing, all of the old sin, what happened to it? It passed away, not just the record of it, but the life of perpetuating in sin. And everything has become new. And James says, hey, turn them back to the truth, the Word of God. Why? Because as the Apostle Paul said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Always remember Romans 1.16. It does not say the gospel contains. It is the very power of God. And finally, verse 20. Our job is to turn them, is to point them back in the right direction. Verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. I often think of what could be more terrifying, what could be more horrible than somebody believing that they're saved. Only on that great day to realize I'm lost. Proverbs 14, 12, you probably know this, says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end is the way of death. Our Lord had a lot to say about this. So did the Apostle Paul. So did the Apostle John. So did the Apostle Peter. The entire New Testament is full of warnings to the church to ensure your salvation. Here are a few. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul writes, test yourself, see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? 
He writes in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always done, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for. He says work it out. Reconcile it. Reconcile your salvation with fear and trembling. The Apostle Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1.16, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What things is he referring? Practicing God's righteousness, not living in perpetual sin. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him. Notice these words. By this we know we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. James likewise is concerned for the souls of those who are in the church but are not of the church. Those who are religious, perhaps with moral persuasion. Hey, I like everything about the religion. You people are so kind. Your people are so loving. Your people are so nice. Maybe they're fully convinced. Hey, great moral persuasion. But they're not saved. And there are three words in this verse, in verse 20, that show exactly who James is writing to. And these three words are sinner, error, and saved. Let's take a look at the first word. James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner. Let's take a look at that word sinner. That word in the Greek means falling short of the mark of God. And what it really means is they're preeminently a sinner. That is the characteristic of their life. They're preeminently a sinner. This word is used in the scripture, always speaks of those who are lost. Not speaking about backsliders. Not speaking about a Christian that may have stumbled and fell. It speaks of those who are lost. For instance, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 1.15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And here James is speaking not to those outside the church. He said, you don't have to go outside the church to get them. They're in the church. They're in the church. This is his closing statement. In this epistle, he has spoken repeatedly of actual, living, vibrant, biblical faith. And has shown that this is the type of faith that is evidence in believers. Now he calls for repentance. So he calls for repentance from the sinner. He says of the sinner that if you turn them from their error, this is a great word in the Greek, error. It means wandering. That's what it means. It's a wanderer. It's a wanderer that is lost in deviant behavior. That's what he is. It's a departure from God. It's a departure from God's truth. This is the root word, the English root word, where we get the word planet. In the Greek, it's plano. In in English, it's planet. And what is a planet? A 
planet is a wandering body. That's a planet. It's a wandering body in space. And become, James uses it in the context of those who have heard the truth and left the truth and now are becoming susceptible to all manner of false doctrine and never staying grounded in the truth. Only Christ keeps the believer grounded. You know, there's a hymn we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy thrones above. We, as sinful creatures, natures of sin, there is a proneness in us to wander from the truth. But praise God for the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and keeps the believer and brings the presence of conviction to keep us from strain. And the last word that uh, James uses here, he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul. This is the Greek word sozo. It means to be delivered from imminent danger. And the imminent danger that it is applying to here is the wrath of God. That's the imminent danger. Perpetual sin leads to the wrath of God being poured out. What does Paul say in in Romans chapter 1? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If you turn the sinner... If you correct his error, you will save his soul from the wrath of God. What are believers saved from? The wrath of God. We're not appointed unto wrath, Paul says. We're saved. Why? Because the wrath of God for our sins was poured out against who? Against Christ on the cross. All that beating, all that stabbing, All of that whipping, all of that spitting, all of that mocking was the wrath of God being poured out on His only Son. Our sins were being judged so that we could indeed go free. James says, if you point them back to Christ, you will save his soul from death, and that is eternal death. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, the unrighteous will spend eternity in it. Do you know that both the saved and the unsaved are eternal beings? We're going to live for eternity. The difference is the saved are going to live with Christ in in eternity, and the unsaved, unfortunately, are going to live in hell. The believer is saved. By the work of the new birth, the believer, not merely the professor who says it with their life. So as we conclude this study of this great epistle, I've stated time again how James was highly influenced by our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And the epistle draws distinctions between a true and living faith in Christ 
versus a dead verbal professed faith through dead works. The true and living faith, guess what? You want to know what the benefits are for those of us that are true and living? Here they are. Number one, we're going to suffer. We're going to be tested. We're going to be caused to endure. And we will fix our hope on the coming of Christ when He makes all things new. True and living faith will, will, all capital, will, demonstrate works of righteousness that bring glory to God. They will do that. Dead faith goes along for the ride. It fails the test of suffering. It may endure, but it endures murmuring and complaining, bringing arguments against God. And as we saw, has a propensity to wander away from the truth into false doctrine and even reject the Lord altogether. I'm terrified for those who have heard the gospel and have chosen not to repent. Listen, the Lord captures this clearly, clearly in Matthew 7, 21. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. By the way, from the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well then, Lord, who will? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice something here. They recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. They are perplexed as to why they've been waiting on the other side in Hades for now judgment. They're fully convinced Christ made a mistake. Imagine the arrogance of that. They're convinced. Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not preach to multitudes in your name? Did I not cast out devils? Did I not do mighty works in thy name? You know who did mighty works in their name? You know who cast out devils? You know who preached in the name of Jesus and is in hell today? Judas. He went out with the 72. But hear the words of our Lord to those who thought they had, all, they had done everything they, they, they needed to do. And I want you to call your attention especially to notice what they say. Lord, Lord, he says to me, not everyone who says... Hear the words of the Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now I want to make a point here. This is an emphatic statement that Jesus is making. If I were to multiply it in English, it would sound like this. I never ever knew you. Now go. You who practice sin perpetually, go. He's not having any more. How horrible and terrifying is that? Absolutely horrible. There's no joy in preaching this. It's terrible. It's terrible. 
Which is why all the scriptures, all the epistles, all call men and women to come and to repent. Not to take lightly the things of God. Not to use the name of God lightly. Not to take the word of God lightly. Not to take the faith of Christ lightly. Not to take the forgiveness and the shed blood of Jesus Christ lightly. The entire scripture preaches that. And I know it's not popular today. And I know people say, oh, you have preaching fire and brimstone. Forget that. It is about truth. This entire epistle was about truth. This entire epistle is, this is what a living, vibrant, biblical, historical, spirit-filled life looks like. Now come and repent if you're not right with God. I heard a preacher the other day. And I'll close with this. I heard a preacher the other day, and he was talking about how the contemporary gospel is all about the blessings and the promises. And, you know, God has inscribed us on his heart, and we're written in the palm of his hand. And, you know, he has great plans for us, plans to give you a future and a hope. Yeah, those are all true. But that is not the entirety of the gospel. And the preacher made a point, and he said, you know, when a person comes to Christ, there's a, a reconciliation that happens in them. They go from thinking, I deserve all of the blessings of God, to realization of saying, I don't deserve anything. I am a wicked, hell-bound sinner. And if God does not save me, there is no hope. I am damned. Why do I make a big deal about this? All of us have been influenced in some way or another by some of the poorer theologies that are out there. If you study church history, you'll find that the preaching of the cross and the preaching of Repentance was dominant, dominant from about the time of the Reformation up until the mid to late 1800s. And then a shift began to occur. And what came in with that shift? Other false doctrines came in. Also what they call higher criticism, a deniability of the Word of God. But this is the truth. How... The writer of Hebrews says this, how shall we, how shall we, if we neglect so great a salvation? This is the hour. This is the hour for all of us to get right with God. This is the time. There's no other day. This is the time. This is the place.